As we continue to sit quietly, I'd like to give a guided practice, and it'll be on impermanence. We'll do several different practices. Each will take about two or three minutes. The first one is to be aware of the sensations of the breath and be aware of the arising of the in-breath, the duration of the in-breath, and the ending of the in-breath, and then the arising of the out-breath, the duration of the out-breath, and the passing away of the out-breath, and then go on again to the in-breath and out-breath and so forth. Noticing the sensations, but noticing those three parts of the in-breath and the three parts of the out-breath. We'll just do this for two or three minutes. And even be aware during the duration of the in-breath or the out-breath of the changes in the breath. Now I'd like to invite you to be aware of the impermanent flow, this time with the sense of sound. So again, listen for the arising of a sound, duration if it lasts very long, and then the passing away. And also be aware of any changes within the sound. I'm gonna ring a bell, for example, and you might hear some reverberations. Just tune in to the arising and passing and any changes that occur.
And now staying for several minutes with any sensations in the body. Again, notice the arising, the duration, the passing away, and any changes during that duration. Whatever sensations are there at any part of the body, just to be open to those changes in one's body. And as we stay with sensations and stay with the flow of impermanent phenomena, also notice what may arise that in a sense gets in the way of just being with that impermanent flow. Could be thoughts, could be likes and dislikes. Notice that as well. Next, I want to invite you to notice the arising and passing of thoughts. Not to try to make thoughts happen, but just to be present and notice the arising and passing of thoughts. Noticing as well if you get involved with them, if they proliferate. But for right now, the instruction would be just to notice thought without feeding a thought. Notice thoughts without feeding them, without elaborating them, just to let them arise and pass on their own. And then notice if something else happens. Again, noticing the arising, the duration, and the passing away.
And now for the uh, last short segment, just to be with whatever arises in experience with any of the senses, including thinking. Notice the arising and passing of whatever occurs in experience. And if you want at some point, maybe open the eyes for 15 seconds if you have them closed and see the arising and passing of visual phenomena. And we'll end the practice session with the uh, chant with the three refuges. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Udam Saranam Gachami Tamam Saranam Gachami Sankam saranam kachami dutiampi udam saranam kachami dutiampi tamam saranam kachami dutiampi sankam saranam kachami dutiampi 
Buddham Saranam Kachami Tatiampi Tamam Saranam Kachami Tatiampi Sangam Saranam Kachami So for anyone who is uh, newer, that those are the chants uh, to really set one's priorities in the possibility of awakening, in the uh, support of the teachings of liberation, and then the support of the community or sangha, which is everyone here. It may not come as a big surprise that the theme of my talk tonight is impermanence. Um, That intention did not change from the time I came here to now. (laughs) Or maybe it changed in some ways, but it's still here. Um, So I want to explore this theme of impermanence tonight. And um, I actually spent a good part of the day uh, in a hospital in Petaluma where my mother is going through a hard stretch, Um, very much related to the theme of impermanence. And I want to dedicate the uh, talk to her. Her name is Bernice. Some of you, probably many of you know, that uh, impermanence is one of the areas of fundamental insight in the teachings of the Buddha. You know, we practice here what's called insight meditation. And you may sometimes ask, what are the insights that are coming? Which have come? Which will come? Are they good insights? When do the big insights come? (laughs) If this is insight meditation, am I getting enough insights, enough bang for the buck? And there are a number of kinds of insights that occur in our practice. You know, uh, partly from sitting quietly, in a way we activate what we sometimes call the intuition. And we may have insights into issues of the moment, issues of the day, some unresolved uh, question, some unresolved concern at work in one's relationship. And sitting quietly can often uh, lead to that kind of more personal insight. It's quite valuable. We might have insights when we watch our minds over and over again to a given pattern. One of my uh, initial insights, what we sometimes call uh, one of the blazing insights into the totally obvious, 
was that I came to have insights initially that I planned a lot. Which if you had asked me before I began meditation, do you plan a lot, I would have said the usual amount. And then I would watch my mind, and I was a student then, I would watch my mind going to a report that I would give in class, like in two days. And in a given meditation, I'd prepare it, plan it over and over again. And at a certain point, I had that more personal insight, which was helpful uh, to see that. And I you know, came to see that I didn't need to plan as much. I didn't need to have in a sitting or two 80 different preparations of the report. 20 would be just fine. <laughs> now as we go deeper, we come to some of the more uh, fundamental areas of insight. And again, I'm sure many of you know that there are three core areas of insight in insight meditation. There are insights into um, first, impermanence, the nature of impermanence, Secondly, the nature of dukkha, uh, usually translated as suffering, which I prefer to translate as reactivity. How we react uh, by either grasping or pushing away. And we gain insight into those patterns and that kind of uh, movement of mind and heart and body. And then the third area of insight is around the very nature of the self. It's an insight into what's called anatta or not-self. In other words, not the usual sense of a solid, separate self. And there's that kind of inquiry uh, into our very nature. And of course, these are quite interrelated. And I'll hope to bring that out in in a lot of ways in terms of uh, looking at impermanence. And... uh, I've been interested in these three. In fact, I think the last time I came here, which was at least a year ago, I don't know, I talked about anatta or not self, I believe. And uh, I'm, so I'm going to talk about impermanence tonight. And then I'm actually teaching at the East Bay Meditation Center, not far from here, in downtown Oakland, tomorrow night. And I'm going to talk about reactivity. And uh, the second of the core areas of insight. And I like the uh, way of understanding insight as a liberating insight. There, there's a book which some of you may know, which uh, came out last year by an English teacher named Rob Berbea. And it's called Seeing That Freeze. And I think that's what our practice is. It's to develop ways of seeing that free us from various kinds of delusion, confusion, bad habits, and uh, tendencies that have been going on for a long time. Whether they're you know, tendencies at, uh, to uh, judge ourselves harshly or to react with anger with certain stimuli or to um, go into various patterns of uh, grasping or pushing away or fighting or aggression or whatever. 
when you look to how people have talked about impermanence, it's often been taken as the core teaching, even among those three at times. So you can find in the Buddha's very last words, the admonition, all things are impermanent. Keep practicing with diligence. Those were the last words. Another time, uh, the Tibetan teacher, the 16th Karmapa, one of the great teachers of the 20th century, uh, who died about 1980 and uh, once stayed at my house for a week. That's another story. It doesn't sound quite like the way I said it. I lived in a I lived in a large communal home in Boston and uh, we were asked to rent it for a week to the Karmapa and his entourage and we had to leave. (laughs) 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 But we were invited to to spend an hour or two with him, (laughs) which was good. And he once made a... uh, uh, a trip to the U.S. Congress. And I, 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 what came to mind is, do I need a trigger warning when I mention the U.S. Congress? <laughs> uh, but uh, he, he went to visit the uh, U.S. Congress, and one congressman asked him, if you could summarize all the teachings of the Buddha in one sentence, how would you do that? And he said, immediately, everything changes. Interesting, right? Because on one level, it's obvious. It's obvious intellectually, right? So, but there's something here that we have to uh, look more deeply into. And similarly, the great Zen teacher, uh, Suzuki Roshi, you know, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, also, he was asked, um, if you could summarize all of Buddhism in a nutshell, how would you do it? And he, he, he right away said, everything changes. Again, so what we'll be looking into is why this seemingly obvious statement is actually meaningful. Why isn't that just something, oh yeah, of course, take me to the real insights. <laughs> you could, could ask that. Here is another statement from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada. Better than 100 years lived without seeing the arising and passing of things is one day lived seeing their arising and passing. Strong, strong statement, right? So I want to, I want to look at impermanence probably in three ways. The first way is looking at what we might call the gross level of impermanence. The second level is looking at moment-to-moment impermanence, much as we uh, looked in our practice session. And then the third is to see how these first two types of practices with impermanence take us into further depths. Okay, so that's what I want to cover 
And I want to leave a fair amount of time for, for discussion, which is generally my favorite part of these kind of evenings. <laughs> yeah. So uh, from the uh, Thai teacher, Achan Cha, you know, the, uh, Jack Cornfield's teacher, wonderful, um, wonderful rascal teacher from Thailand, whom, whom I, I studied with some. And he said, not seeing impermanence or wanting it different is like asking a river to back up, boxing a tree and hoping to win, or going to a duck and asking, why aren't you a chicken? (laughs) Here's another, let's see where this is. There was a... um, Interesting reflections on that. We know that things are impermanent. They arise and pass away, but they do so at different rates. You know, some things pass more quickly. Obviously, you could see that in the meditation. You could see little mind moments just blip, or you could see a sound come and go, and there are different rates. And there was once an interchange between uh, two poets, uh, uh, Lou Welch and Gary Snyder. And they were sitting around a campfire one evening, probably like in the Sierras or Sierra foothills. And uh, Lou Welch, uh, after a long silence, said, "Uh, Gary, do you think that the rocks pay attention to the trees? And uh, Gary Snyder said, Well, I don't really know, Lou. What are you getting at? (laughs) And he said, well, for the rocks, the trees are just passing through. (laughs) And so he wrote a little poem based on this. He said, as the cricket's soft autumn hum is to us, so are we to the trees as are they to the rocks and hills. So there are different rates of impermanence. In so many traditions, looking at the gross level of impermanence, which includes looking at our own impermanence, is a fundamental practice. And this, this may be something which draws you. you know, some of you know that in the Tibetan traditions, there are so-called preliminary practices, you know, sort of preparatory to the... Uh, further, we might say, deeper practices. And the, they're, they're really meant to sh- um, help with one's motivation, help to shift one's motivation. And among the reflections are those on, on impermanence and death. The first reflection is on the preciousness of human life. So a lot of the purpose of the reflection on the gross level of impermanence is to develop a sense of of um, priorities and urgencies. You know, their they're, um, text, let me see where this is. Uh, this is. This is from a, a text uh, called Ten Subjects for Daily Reflection from the Buddha. And one of the lines in it, one of the ten reflections, the days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? And in the... Um, Tibetan tradition, one might 
regularly take a certain amount of time to just reflect on impermanence and death in an ordinary way. To just look at the seasons passing or look at the rise and fall of presidential candidates. (laughs) Because everything is impermanent, right? A Mr. Trump is impermanent. I am impermanent. You are impermanent. This building is impermanent, right? Um, one reflection which I did for several years, which was very fruitful, was just taking 10 minutes a day. This is one way we can practice. Take 10 minutes a day, reflect on impermanence and death in a, an ordinary way. Just go see where your mind goes. Reflect on what's changing in a very uh, commonsensical way. Reflect on death. Reflect on your own impermanence. And do this regularly, and it can lead and help lead at times to a sense of um, being clear about priorities. A lot of the motivation for looking at impermanence is to be clear about one's priorities, sometimes to have a sense of urgency, because we don't know when we will, how long we will have health. We don't know how long conditions will be such that we can practice. That's often the reflection in a lot of the, in, in, in so many traditions. From the uh, Psalms in the Jewish Bible, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Reflection on impermanence connected with becoming, with becoming wiser. And so we can really notice what comes up when we reflect on impermanence in that, in that more gross way. Again, this is from, um, these, are, these are from some similar remembrances. This is in the version by Thich Nhat Hanh, which in his uh, community, they recite every day, I believe. I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground on which I stand. And I don't think this is meant to be morbid. And probably, if any of us are drawn to those kind of reflections, we, we want to track that we're not letting that make us more morbid or depressed or whatever. It's really meant, again, to have a sense of urgency and a clarification of priorities. And so, if you f- so we may want to balance that with really tuning into beauty or tuning into... Uh, the beautiful qualities of mind, heart, and body. You know, it's, but it's, I think it's, it comes out of an understanding that there's often denial, and that we often don't want to look at impermanence and death. And so we may work with that gross level. Again, a very simple practice, 10 minutes a day. I did that, I think, for three years. It really was helpful. 10 minutes a day, reflecting just in an ordinary way, seeing what comes to mind when you 
go in that direction. The practices we did in the guided practice look at another dimension of impermanence that is also uh, quite amazing and fascinating. This is looking at moment-to-moment impermanence, looking closely at our experience. And it's tuning in, and we can do it in the ways that I guided us, very simple, just to stay with one sense, just to stay with the sense of sound. You know, sit outside with traffic, just to be with the arising and passing away of sound, just to be with the uh, body sensations, to be with the breath, to notice thinking arising and passing. And part of the reason I was motivated to work with this theme is that I've been, in the last uh, two months, involved with uh, four retreats, uh, two of which I was a participant in. And a lot of the time in those retreats, I was hanging out with impermanence in ways similar to the way that I guided. My experience was that it actually was very lightening and in a way freeing and actually led to a lot of joy uh, to tune in in that way. And one can, you could tune in in that way that we did, do that 10 or 15 minutes a day, it'll shift things. I remember when I was first practicing, I really also was into impermanence and I liked to stay with sound and I would uh, actually sit by a creek. I was, on, I was living on the East Coast then, and I was in the mountains in Virginia. I would just sit by a creek and listen to the water, sometimes for hours in a day. It was very joyful. Occasionally I'd hear some sounds in the grass, and I knew there were rattlesnakes around. I would move from the awareness of the f- moving flux to, what is that? <laughs> and... See, and that's interesting, very interesting. One of the insights, one of the major areas of insights that we can see from working with impermanence is we start to see uh, how we uh, aren't simply with the flow of experience. And so it can be deeply insightful to stay, to have follow the instructions to stay with the flow of sound or of thoughts or of, Um, sensations, and then watch what happens. And we can start to see, oh, there are certain kinds of sensations which I'm particularly interested in. Which are those? Well, they're the pleasant and the unpleasant. (laughs) Heightened interest in those. Psychologists say that 2% of our actual experience is either pleasant or unpleasant, and 98% is neutral. Where do we spend all our lives focusing? (laughs) It's on that 2%, right? And all the wars in the world and all the disagreements, they're about that 2%. And so what we can study is how our minds work with that flow, how we, when we want something or we like something, what happens to our sense of that flow? Do we try to control the flow, react to it, and so forth? What happens when there's something unpleasant? Do we push it away? Does it start a whole process of of thinking? You know, it's fascinating to watch. I I can remember from my own uh, retreat, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, sitting and noticing sometimes thoughts would occur. I would be sitting, watching that impermanent flow, 
And then I'd be noticed, you know, a sensation in my nose. And I'd have the thought, that's an itch. In, out, in, out. Why don't you do something? <laughs> you know, and the, you know you, you get, we, we know this very well, right? There's a whole action plan developed from that itch. Right? And fascinating, though, to watch how we go from this flow of experience, often beneath even the level of concepts, and how we move into the world of concepts and action. And of course, that's necessary for human life. But we actually don't really see clearly the extent to which we live in a constructed world, a world constructed of concepts and preferences. The study of impermanence can take us to that level of depth where we start seeing that. The psychologist uh, William James said that a baby lives in a blooming, blooming, buzzing confusion and has to learn uh, concepts, has to learn to live in a world of concepts and constructions. And, you know, some of you are probably psychologists and, you know, maybe you've studied Piaget and you can actually trace the sequence by which different kinds of concepts develop. When does the sense of self develop? When does the sense of time develop? And so forth. Very interesting. In meditation, we somewhat reverse the process because we're interested in going beneath the level of construction. You can see how impermanence, practice of impermanence has that power to take us beneath the level of concepts and to help us to really see how concepts come to work in our lives. Their relationship to preferences, to likes and dislikes and so forth. In many ways, we live in a world of concepts The philosopher Wittgenstein says, we are bewitched by language. We live in a world of concepts and we don't see how they're constructed typically. When we study impermanence, we can get at that conditioning. We can be with that flow and notice what happens. As as the mind is more quiet, we can study in that way. It can be tremendously revealing. It can also be a little bit disorienting because we start to see my God, I'm living in this world of constructions. The the practice with impermanence makes the world somewhat less solid, which can be a little bit disorienting or even scary at times. In our practice, we take that though to be seeing more accurately the way things are. We live in this solid world uh, driven by our conceptual conditioning often driven by habit. Studying impermanence lets us start to see more clearly how those concepts occur. We can just be with the level of sensation or with the breath and start to just be with the arising and passing of phenomena continually, especially as the concentration gets good. We can start to see, oh, look at that, I'm just with the flux of experience. Oh. Look at that, I really like that one and it starts a whole uh, conceptual uh, outburst, a proliferation. And all of a sudden, I've uh, decided to read these books on meditation, to take a retreat on impermanence and to um, 
quit my job. <laughs> that can happen. Uh, this is from the uh, philosopher Nietzsche, really pointing to how, how uh, we, that constructed world occurs. A nerve stimulus first transposed into an image, first metaphor, the image imitated by a sound as we have a word for something. Second metaphor, we believe we know something of the things themselves when we speak of trees, colors, snow, and flowers, but we possess only metaphors of things that do not in the slightest correspond to the original and essential entities. That's a strong statement. And so as we practice with this sense of flow, especially as the concentration deepens, we can be with the movement of phenomena, notice the arising of concepts and constructions, but see them as constructions rather than simply as the way things are. This comes from this practice with moment to moment, moment to moment um, impermanence. And so again, we can do the practices we mentioned. Uh, I have mentioned the, the practices with more gross level of impermanence, reflection. We can do the practices that I gave for periods of time. Uh, I've sometimes done practices very similar to this for weeks on end in retreats. And we can have a sense of this continual flow of phenomena. Um, it takes some training to get there, but it changes things. It also, I think, uh, practice of impermanence, awareness of impermanence, can be brought into the heart practice. I'm going to speak in a little while about how I think uh, really deepen investigation of impermanence actually can deepen our sense of compassion. And I, I was uh, finding myself on... Uh, one of these recent retreats, doing loving-kindness practice in a different way, influenced by impermanence. I would be doing my loving-kindness phrases, you know, uh, which for me are, may I rest in the irradiant heart. May I be safe and free from harm. May my body support my practice. May I be held in love. You know, and you have, you have your own phrases. And I found myself influenced by impermanence doing loving-kindness phrases, something like this. May you, who arise and pass and are, are, are impermanent, may you be well. So bringing impermanence into the very offering of good wishes and of kindness. We do that, and I would do that sometimes the retreat would just be with one person at a time. I like to do loving kindness at retreats in the dining hall. And I sort of take a look at one person, close my eyes, keep chewing, and say four metaphrases for the person. Then open my eyes, choose another person, have the image, and say more phrases. And to do that with each person, I think I, I added, I added something. I said, each person is precious. Each person is impermanent. Each person is precious, has gifts, and is impermanent. And then I would wish them well. And something, it felt like a beautiful new way that kind of came creatively out of the retreat 
of doing heart practices you know, in the spirit of impermanence. So really maybe two points I want to uh, finish with. And the, the two points are about how there are further depths actually as we practice with impermanence. Reflecting on death and change, ordinary impermanence can take us quite deeply, can be very poignant. Uh, you know, I was thinking there was, let me see if I have this here. Um, one, of, one of the places that this sense of the poignancy of ordinary change occurs that I like a lot is in uh, Chinese poetry. And some of you maybe know that volume called Sunflower Splendor, 3,000 Years of Chinese Poetry. If you don't, <laughs> you have a treat, <laughs> a possible treat. And, and um, th- this is a poem by uh, Tu Fu, I think from the Tang Dynasty, I believe, like 8th century. And a lot of the poems are about the simple passage of time and the poignancy of that. So this is, let me see, this is a poem called By the Winding River. Every day on the, this is Tufu, every day on the way home from my office, I pawn another of my spring clothes. Every day I come home from the riverbank drunk. Everywhere I go, I owe money for wine. History records few people who live to be 70. I watch the yellow butterflies drink deep of the flowers and the dragonflies dipping the surface of the water again and again. I cry out to the spring wind and the light and the passing hours. We enjoy life such a little. Why should we cross each other? So we can have have depth from that ordinary reflection on permanence and we can clearly have a lot of depth in being increasingly with the flow of phenomena free of conceptualization, which can be quite exhilarating and wonderful. And you can do it in various ways. You know, again, sound is quite wonderful. Do it with uh, music. Maybe some of you do already. Just listen to the music, particularly something maybe just has one instrument. You know, so it's not so, your mind doesn't have to figure relationships of instruments together or listen to words, but just like one instrument playing and stay with it just on the level of an impermanent flow. So that can take us very deeply. And there's, and so we um, come to see more deeply the constructed nature of things, the way that things are built up, the way that we live in a kind of illusion of solidity that impermanence helps us work through. It's almost like, you know, we're, we, we know that with film, that film is uh, 24 frames a second, right? And, we, and it creates an illusion of reality, right? And our actual experience isn't that different from that. You know, there's something happening quite quickly. With meditation, we can uh, slow down that process and actually see its nature. And that can take us very deeply. It's also tremendously valuable uh, to be able to get rid of bad habits because we see all our bad habits are just constructions. 
not permanent. So very helpful. <laughs> very helpful. And we also can start to see that as we go more deeply, we can really see that everything in a way is impermanent. But we can start seeing, is there, and really start asking the question. Let's see where this, where this is. <coughs> we can ask the question when we cult, because at a certain point when we're practicing with impermanence, we're continually attending to the changes, the flow. At a certain point, we can bring the awareness back to look at awareness itself. And we can start to look more deeply at awareness. And we can ask, is awareness impermanent? Is it permanent? And we may be drawn to say that it's neither. That there's some part of ourselves that's actually deeper than the flow of impermanence. That's connected with our deep awareness. This is from one of the great Thai teachers, uh, uh, Achan Mahabua, who died, I think, about just about three or four years ago, if I remember right. Who, who again, I, I met him in Thailand, one of the great teachers of the last generation or two. He said this, whatever arises has to vanish. Whatever is true whatever is a natural principle in in and of itself won't vanish. The pure mind of awareness doesn't vanish. Everything of every sort may vanish, but that which knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. This vanishes, that vanishes, but the one who knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. Whether or not we try to leave it untouched, it keeps on knowing. That's really an invitation to see as we, you know, again, it's sort of a, uh, a shift of perspective. We start being with the flow of phenomena and we have, you know, we have our awareness looking outward, as it were, and tracking, right? Kind of like, you know, one metaphor for impermanence is that we are almost as if we're sitting and there's a river in front of us, maybe after a storm. And our only business is to track what's right in front of us coming down the river, you know, and there are limbs and leaves and, you know, plastic bottles and, you know, probably been out in the country after a storm and seen what comes from upstream, right? And so our only job is just to watch that coming through. And then that's a lot of the impermanence practice I've mentioned so far is like that. We're just watching at this sense, at that sense. At a certain point, we can shift perspectives and bring the awareness and turn it back on itself. And that's where we may start to uh, see something that is neither impermanent nor permanent. That's something to investigate. And then the last point is one I was uh, mentioning earlier is that most of what we've been talking about, or I've been talking about, uh, about impermanence is really a wisdom practice. It's really about seeing more clearly. Mm. A lot of it's about seeing more clearly, 
and having a sense of priorities and what's important for oneself when we look at the gross level. But the moment-to-moment work with impermanence is really a wisdom practice. And we can remember that characterization of the teachings as like a bird that has two wings, and the two wings are wisdom and compassion. Right? And this is really what I was pointing to earlier, in t- partly in talking about those reflections on death and things changing, that if we don't stay in the heart in some way, we can lose perspective. We can get caught, caught in the... Um, <clears throat> we can get caught in the uh, sense of um, seeing clearly and not bring in the heart. And so this work with impermanence can also take us to, much like in the meta practice I was describing, to really have a sense of we're all in this together. We're all impermanent. We don't like to think about it or look at that too much. But if we look accurately, that's true. And we can all hold ourselves and each other with a lot of compassion, being impermanent. Much like that poem by Tu Fu, why should humans cross each other? Why should they be mean to each other? We are here for such a short time. Of course, in certain moments, it can feel like a long time. (laughs) So I think I'll finish with uh, actually another, uh, another poem uh, kind of set of reflections by, by Gary Snyder, um, which is really about this quality of compassion. And this is uh, from a poem called After Bamiyan. And uh, Bamiyan refers to the uh, statues of the Buddha in Afghanistan that were blown up by the Taliban in April of 2001, shortly before 9-11. And uh, there were a number of reflections and someone wrote a letter to him more or less saying, hey, you talk all the time about impermanence. What's the problem? (laughs) What's the problem with a few statues being blown up, you know? What's, you know, 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 uh, grow up or whatever. (laughs) You know, what's the problem? And uh, the person wrote a letter to him that said, yes, the manifest dharma is intrasamsaric and will decay. Kind of a little overly intellectual, right? Overly intellectual take on impermanence without the compassion. Right? And so he responded in this way. And he's going to quote a poem, famous poem by a Japanese haiku writer named Isa, who lived, I think, at the end of the... Uh, 18th, beginning of the 19th century, and he wrote a poem when his uh, son died, young son died. And in the poem, he refers to the uh, Diamond Sutra. And there are famous lines in the Diamond Sutra where it's said that our life is like uh, a dewdrop in the morning a flash of lightning in the night and so forth. There are like four or five metaphors that are used in the text that point to impermanence. And uh, this is, so, so when you hear this, Isa uh, in his haiku is, is going to be quoted by Gary Snyder referring to the Diamond Sutra in that way. So this is what he said. 
Ah, yes, impermanence. But this is never a reason to let compassion and focus slide or to pass off the sufferings of others because they are merely impermanent beings. The haiku goes, this dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet. And then Snyder closes by saying, and yet is our perennial practice and maybe the heart of the Dharma. It's the compassion. And yet is our perennial practice and maybe the root of the Dharma. So we have time for any questions or reflections or um, spontaneous poems, <laughs> please. Yeah. We use we use the microphone. Yeah. Hi, um, I'm having a lot of trouble with this idea of the awareness being neither permanent nor impermanent, um, and. Maybe I'm being, you know, was it misled by the language, as Nietzsche said, you know, but it seems to me that either something changes or it doesn't, or, you know, if so, can you illuminate that a little bit in some way? Well, um, The main answer is going to be from inquiring in your own experience. Um, if we do it right now, maybe first start with being aware of, let's, we, can, we can all do this briefly. Let's be, aware of the, let's be aware of the flow of sensations in the body. And just be tracking that. And here we have a structure of knower and known. And in a way, we, I, think, I think your question is uh, certainly a valid one because in some ways I didn't make too many distinctions. So, so let me, we can, okay, let's I'll come out of that meditation and say, when we watch that flow of phenomena, we could say that we have consciousness and an object. You know, the object is the sensation, this sensation, that sensation, and so forth. And we have, a, we have consciousness and an object. When we then, uh, what we can do is, and we're not saying that consciousness is neither impermanent nor permanent. That kind of consciousness that knows like that is impermanent. Okay? 
there is another kind of awareness that is a deeper kind of awareness that's not the same as the consciousness that knows an object. It's, a, it's an awareness that is without a focus on an object. Sometimes we say there, there we can access an awareness that's beyond the subject-object uh, division. And if we can access that, it seems to have a different nature than the consciousness which knows an object, which is impermanent. And it doesn't seem to be um, basically a conditioned phenomenon. That's a, that's a way of saying it. All conditioned phenomena are impermanent. The question is, are there any, uh, can one experience something that is more unconditioned? And that's where that quote was coming from. So it's a qualitatively different kind of awareness. And I think, I think so, so I think your question is, given what I said, is well taken because I didn't make that distinction. So how to access a kind of awareness definitely be at least another talk. <laughs> uh, but I think that's what Achan Mahabu was talking about. So, but thank you for helping me to clarify that. Does that, does that help some? I, I, some, I wasn't saying, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm doing a whole retreat on this, uh, April 3rd to 10th at Spirit Rock. Um, unfortunately, it's full. <laughs> so, okay, but thank you. There's a, okay. other, other points or questions? Uh, I'm, I, I love your closing comment about the practices and yet yeah. in there. And I'm, uh, for a couple of years I've been living mostly with my meditation practice with Anapanasati Sutta. Yeah. With, uh, and when it comes to impermanence, one of the things that struck me a while back was, was how you know, some things, mountains, are impermanent, but it's impermanent at such a long scale that it's not right. really like this you know, like, like a heartbeat or a breath or a, yeah. or something. And an awful lot of the and yet, it seems to be kind of in a way pushing back against the impermanence. You know, let's save the redwood trees. Let's make them, maybe not permanent, but let's make them last at least a few, another couple generations. Right. Or, um, you know, I'm really thankful that you hung on to that memory, that thought of let's talk about impermanence and you didn't lose it when you first had whatever that first right. inspiration right. was. And when we have children... We, you know, they won't be our children longer than we live or longer yeah. than they live. Um, but we're kind of pushing out that, you know, maintenance, uh, push, pushing against the impermanence that's in right. a sense without a grasping clinging. So I'd like to hear exactly, you talk a little bit yeah. more about that. Yeah, that's really, I, thank you for bringing that out because I didn't, I didn't bring this out so much. But, you know, one of the main points of studying impermanence is that we see how things are changing and the understanding of impermanence can reduce the tendencies to grasp after things because they're changing. And so, uh, or to have the kind of reactions we, ha- we have, and yet it's very important to uh, really see, you know, to make some s- more subtle distinctions. So things are changing and we may not uh, grasp so much but we can uh, still say, oh, I really want to take this photograph to remember this moment, right? 
And so it, I think the invitation, and, and it's really a question of what is skillful action. And part of what the practice helps us do is ask, how much am I grasping? How much am I hanging on, pushing away? And can there be a skillful way to um, want the redwood trees to be around more? or want this relationship to last. Uh, So I think it's an interesting question because I think that as we saw with that last uh, poem, uh, there can be ways that we have distorted understandings of impermanence. And I think it would be distorted if we somehow thought, oh, I should just be passive or it's, it's like the teachings of the near enemies with loving kindness or compassion or joy or equanimity. There are distorted versions of a lot of key understandings that come from not having such a balanced view. And I think we could, we could see that. It's really be interesting to actually spell it out a little bit more. So we could have a mistaken understanding of um, impermanence, much like in the poem, which says... Uh, why grieve the destructions of these statues? Or why grieve the loss of this relationship? I think the, the question is really to ask, where am I coming from? Am I coming, what's my motivation? Is the motivation like with, with children to really honor and deepen love? Or is it to grasp in some way? And that's where our practice can help. And to the extent that there's grasping related to wanting something to last. Or, you know, I mean, I, uh, I've worked quite a bit with activists, right? And in that, in that book, I, I deal with this in the last chapter, which is like my favorite one. I think, that, I think the theme is how do you combine committed action with a sense of non-attachment to outcome, which is paradoxical. When you try to think it out, it's, it's hard, right? It's, it's like in Hindu tradition, uh, Gandhi worked with this. You know. So there was a deep commitment, to, um, deep commitment to the independence of India. Right? But, but when you look at it moment to moment, he was able to um, you know, let go of this agenda or you know, as an activist, oh, this has to happen. Well, that's, that's more like the grasping. I'm committed to bringing about more love and less suffering in the world, right? There, so there can be a deep commitment that doesn't go along with grasping. And it, it's somewhat paradoxical to talk about. Yeah, again, in Hindu tradition, they talk about action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. So you're still acting. It's still important, but there's some, some kind of letting go, right? So when you try to think it out, it's like, huh, right? Uh, but again, it's there in a lot of traditions. You know, I think it's uh, in Taoist tradition, there's the notion of Wu Wei. Some of you know that, which is like, <clears throat> it's sometimes called non-action. So you're acting, but it's not the usual kind of grasping action. <clears throat> that probably doesn't help too much. <laughs> no, that's good. I, I like the term uh, non-complacent equanimity also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like how... It, some of this is paradoxical. Like, how can I... Because it's like the Brahma Vihara, uh, this teaching, where you combine love, 
compassion and equanimity. Well, how do those go together? Right? Well, they do. But it's not, like, it's not a neat package conceptually necessarily. Right? So you keep on developing equanimity, uh, which is more about balance, but you also keep developing compassionate action. And I, again, the main thing is to see, uh, is, there, is there grasping? Am, am I really tightening around something? And within that, then, you, you, you act. We all do all sorts of things which say, uh, it's important that this Thursday evening group continue. It's benefiting people. You know, it's important that, you know, uh, uh, you know I'm, I'm taking a sabbatical starting in about uh, two months. I'm going to try to write a book on transforming the judgmental mind, even though I know the book will be impermanent. Right, but it's like uh, it's important to do that, right? So how how do we uh, um, how do we square that? Maybe again, it's to to not get too hung up about only focusing on impermanence, because there are other, in a sense, there are other insights. Yeah, that's, that's a deep one. Maybe time for one or two more. I saw some other hands. Please. I think you just touched on on my question a little bit in the end there, but um, I was thinking um, one of my struggles working with impermanence is the side effects of doing such work. The the side effects of doing such work. um, The side effects. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it requires a a deep level of compassion and acceptance to to work with impermanence. Yeah. the side effects of deep sadness that comes up, can, um, yeah. and the, then the powerlessness, um, the indifference that yeah. comes up right. because there is such a focus on the self. And I can tell you very safely from watching some of the people in my life who are so into their spiritual practice that they have completely detached from the world. Right. And then, and I think there is something quite this. Um, concerning to me if we all really go in that direction of becoming sort and sort semi-urban monks where we live in a society where we have so many people to care for and so many issues to resolve, um, then it's going to lead eventually to a great deal of apathy and indifference. And um, and, and um, And I just really think about that a lot. Right. No, it's a great point. Very, very similar to where we were going with the last uh, point or, or question. And this is, this is where, again, I think, uh, I think you're right. There are, as it were, occupational hazards of studying impermanence. And that's why I think the larger framework uh, that holds our investigation of impermanence is really crucial. You know, particularly that larger framework that says, and again, this is clear in a lot of traditions, a lot of Buddhist traditions, that says that, imp- that the study of impermanence, which is primarily a wisdom practice, has to be balanced with the compassion practice. Right? That's, that's the key. You find that, again, with this notion, the Dharma ha- is a bird that has two wings, the, bird, uh, the wing of uh, wisdom and the wi- wing of compassion. And then you know, the Vietnamese in the 20th century in the context of a lot of social suffering, 
they said, actually, we need a third aspect, which is that of courage. We need wisdom, compassion, and courage. And I like to think courage is the body of the bird, which wasn't mentioned for about 2,000 years. <laughs> um, and, and that there's something about, you know, in a way, the wisdom is the mind, compassion is the heart, and the courage is the body. And so we have to have all those integrated. And if we can have, imper- if we just have the wisdom, if we just have impermanence, it can be disconnected from the heart and even disembodied in a certain way, not in our action, not in our way of being in the world. And I was thinking also in Tibetan tradition, they also, I think, are pretty clear about that because there are all sorts, there are all sorts of dangers of wisdom being disconnected from compassion. And that's really, I think, what you're getting at. And uh, if you just look at the wisdom aspect, you won't necessarily know that. That's a problem. Right? And so I think of in Tibetan tradition, it's said that the highest teaching is, they, for them, the core wisdom teaching, quite similar in permanence, is called is emptiness. And they say the highest teaching is emptiness completely mingled with compassion. Right? And that's, that's the deepest and most poignant teaching. And so I think that, uh, I think it's very helpful. Uh, I think what this is getting at, maybe, uh, you know, maybe I would, uh, next talk I do on impermanence, I think I'd bring this out a little bit more, these occupational hazards. And so, if, so one way we could actually act on this is to say, when we're doing impermanence practice, we really should be doing a heart practice at the same time. That would be very helpful, wouldn't it? Like we'd to be doing metta or compassion practice and have them be... Um, um, informing each other, mingling with each other. You know, a little bit like it happened with my experience with the, uh, with the metta, right? With the metta where I say, each person is precious and has gifts and is impermanent, right? That would, that would lead to uh, caring action, I think. And I would add to that wise action yeah. because, you know, uh, compassion that doesn't translate into action. That's right. That yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what I mean. Compassion... Some of you know, I better finish with this and get to the meta cards. <laughs> but the, um, some of you know, we, like at Spirit Rock, I teach on Wednesday mornings. And I teach like 20 feet from a huge uh, tanka, you know, an image. of It's, it's actually n- related to uh, Avalokiteshvara, uh, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of a cousin or something. Looks very similar, but it's different. I forget the name. It's not one that we know well. But that uh, figure has a thousand arms. And each hand on each arm has an eye. And this is the um, this is sort of a, a sense of the core nature of compassion. The eye is the receptive aspect of compassion and the hand is the active aspect. Compassion has to be both receptive and active. If it's just receptive, limited. That's really your point. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Okay. So I'll read we just have uh, a few. I'll read these cards to finish, then we'll do a dedication of merit. For my cousin Joan, who is in hospice experiencing the last days of her physical life. Maddie Wood, 
he is in a very challenging environment this week. And I think I'll again offer uh, best wishes for my mom. I'm going to go back to the hospital tomorrow and uh, be with her. And she's having a very hard stretch. You know, so... Um, So maybe let, uh, before we do the dedication of merit, let me invite you, if there's an intention which came out of this evening in some way, just let that be present for yourself. It could be related to the theme of impermanence or these practices, or it could be something totally unrelated because sometimes we come and something just sparks us and we have some other insight, intuition, intention. So let whatever intention comes out of this evening be there for you. Let me close with the uh, traditional dedication of merit, which is really an intention practice. We remember that we are here very much for ourselves, but also very much for others. And we offer the benefits and the fruits of our evening, of our practice, to ourselves, to each other, to those in this community, and then beyond the walls, Out into the world, we offer the benefit and fruits of our practice, of our session, to all beings, both here and beyond these walls. And so when we offer the benefits to all beings, we also include ourselves, always. Thank you very kindly, and to be continued. And if anyone wants to explore the second area of insight, East Bay Meditation Center, 6.30. Tomorrow night. night. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.